What's good, everybody? My name is Dr. Bettina Love. And my name is Chelsea Cully Love. And you are listening to Teaching to Thrive. Thrive is a podcast committed to sharing ideas that strengthen the everyday lives of Black and Brown students within our schools and communities. Each episode is aimed at empowering our shared knowledge for collective liberation. Teaching to Thrive is brought to you by Abolitionist Teaching Network. You can follow us at abolitionistteachingnetwork.org. What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for joining us to the fifth episode of Teaching to Thrive, brought to you by ATN. We have someone today that I think is not only an amazing scholar and writer and healer, but someone at this moment that we need to hear from, and that is Annalise Singh. She wrote the amazing book, Racial Healing. She used to be a colleague of mine before she took herself to Tulane. And so we are just so delighted to have such a wonderful, beautiful person with us to talk about Something that I think is on the minds of so many Americans and so many people around the world is how do we heal from where we are right now? So thank you so much, so much for joining us, Annalise. Oh, it's so good to hear your voice, Tina and Chelsea. I'm so excited to have a conversation with you. I miss you too, by the way. I miss you too. Welcome, Annalise. Welcome. So the first question we have to ask, I mean, here we are a day after the inauguration. How are you feeling? Wow. You know, I have to say, um, as a mixed race, South Asian, white adjacent person, which means, you know, my dad was from India. He was Sikh, dark skinned immigrant. My mom, white from Northeast Louisiana. You know, yesterday was just, I'm still digesting it. It was historic, uh, I think, to have the first black woman as vice president, but also to see as a mixed race person that she defines herself. That is just so meaningful and powerful to me. And so I'm, I'm feeling really excited. We, we got a lot of things to still address, uh, but I have never heard, you know, white guys say uh, systemic racism. <laughs> so right. even white supremacy come out right. of a- like Joe, Joe, yeah. Grandpa Joe was out there preaching. I said, okay, Uncle Joe. <laughs> I was like, bring it. I think we're here for it. And we've been waiting. We've, we've been waiting. Yeah. So we had this historic day that many of us just took this breath of release of sigh. You know, I don't think Joe Biden is an abolitionist. I don't think Joe Biden is going to bring us freedom tomorrow. You know, I think many people have said it right. You know, a vote for Joe Biden was harm reduction. And now we're watching, right, you know, him suspend deportations, him, you know, throwing out 1776. So here we are, like he's doing the things to prevent harm. But a few weeks ago, January 6th, you know, we had insurrection Mm -hmm. at our Capitol. 
And everyone is talking about this idea of we got to heal. We got to heal. So I thought it was just so important to talk to you at this very moment because you wrote the book on racial healing. And so just tell us before we get into racial healing and accountability, just tell us what were your thoughts when you were watching that and what was going on? What was going through your head? Well, I love that question, Tina, because I think, you know, that morning I was celebrating Georgia, you know, I was like Trump's nightmare. I moved to New Orleans and I'm voting in Georgia. I'm like, yes, I am your nightmare. Uh, We still own our home in uh, Georgia. So we made it, made sure to vote in DeKalb County. Uh, Thank you, DeKalb. But I think, you know, so many of us, I think in the movement, in the abolition movement and liberation movements, we, we know what it took. Uh, to get to senators uh, who are not just Democrats, but a black man and a Jewish man into the Senate from Georgia. So to start with adulation and all that gratitude to Stacey Abrams and all the queer and trans folks of color who were really at the bedrock and foundation of her movement, to go to, all right, well, yeah, this is exactly white supremacy. I mean, we saw a huge attack on the Capitol. And I'm like, these fools are... (laughs) These are majority white men. These are cisgender, straight, white dudes attacking the Capitol. And before they even attack the Capitol, as they're like repelling and using all their equipment, they were invited in to the Capitol through tours. They were invited in by legislators. They were invited in by the Capitol Police. They were in the Capitol Police. They were the legislators. So I think the rot of white supremacy was already in the Capitol. And so I think it was, you know, definitely, I think visually and just, I would say even spiritually jarring for many of us. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, wow, like this is what we have created and this is who we are in 2021. And this is what we have to talk about and we have to fight against. Yeah, I mean, it just felt like so much of chickens coming home to roost. Yes, 100%. It is what we have sowed. It is who we are. And it it definitely points the direction of where we want we need to go. I mean, of course, I'm sure your phone was blowing up like mine. Uh, and with different reactions, you know, some folks who've been doing the work on racial justice and racial healing for a long time we're not surprised. Um, of course, we're horrified. But then, you know, other folks are, are a little earlier in their waking up process and they're seeing for the first time what this looks like. And I think many people can go throughout their day and not really think about that type of sentiment being in the highest levels of our government, the highest levels of our military. Really, you know, we all know, we should know <laughs> by January 2021 that the roots of, you know, the police are in the slave patrols, the you know, white enslaver, you know, white supremacist behavior. So um, not surprised by what happened, but I think it definitely was a racial reckoning on a whole nother level. Yeah. So so I watched and and again, like many of us, was not surprised at what I was seeing. I was, I don't know what the emotions that I was experiencing were. And I think that a lot of that was because I was thinking about my students the next day that I was going to have to teach. And I knew that this was a lesson that we were going to have to take to them. And I was going to be in charge of talking to third graders about what they had seen and how this affected them. And one of the things that we do in leading up to a lesson is talk about misconceptions and and clarify any words or things that are are hard to understand. And so Tina asked you about racial healing. And so I would like for you to 
just kind of define or to explain what racial healing is and then to break it down a little bit more so that teachers are able to explain that to and understand how to apply that to their kids. Sure. I love that question, Chelsea. I mean, I really have thought long and hard about racial healing. I think as a mixed race person, as someone whose skin gets dark in some parts of the season and lighter in others, and someone as a non-Black person of color, mixed race person who is adjacent to whiteness and who experiences advantage uh, around my race often in my life. And so Um, I think for me, you know, I had to even think like, is racial healing something we can actually achieve? Is it, you know, is it some cop out? Is it something like maybe we shouldn't even explore? But the more and more I kind of delved into my story, I thought about like the experiences of race and racism I'd seen in my community. I just, to me, you know, before we even define racial healing, I think we have to ask, like, do we even think that's possible? And I think, you know, starting with uh, kids, children, you know, young people, you know, I think that may be a question they have, like, is this possible to end? And we know that Derek Bell, like Kimberly Crenshaw, all the greats of critical race theory, they're like, uh, hell no, <laughs> like, this is like permanent. <laughs> There's a permanent to, permanence to racism and white supremacy and definitely anti-Blackness and indigenous erasure. But when I really sat and got quiet and, you know, I'm definitely have some Indian heritage and the whole stereotype of meditating and doing yoga. I grew up with that. I know not every South Asian person (laughs) did, but when I got quiet in my meditations, the answer was yes. The answer was yes. And then when I would come out of those meditations and really look at research, look at my own research, look at the research uh, that was about the the wounds that racism creates uh, at a cellular level, uh, but also at and just kind of the movement of white supremacy over time and looking at how racial justice and liberation movements have sought to uh, counter it. I was like, you know what? They, they gave us the playbook. There was always something they were doing. You know, the freedom fighters were always sitting at a kitchen table. We know that from womanism and uh, from just the ways they planned the, the resistance. But then they took care of each other. And then when they went into their work and their personal lives, there were individual actions that people took to take care of each other and, and help each other withstand all the effects of racism. So I think before we ever get to that part where we start defining what racial healing is, I think we have to tell the truth of what racism is, what white supremacy is, what anti-Blackness is, what indigenous erasure is, how the system of white supremacy is set up. But then also say, you know what, humans set this up and humans, we can suck sometimes. But wow, like when we don't suck, when we like really lean into our relationships and lean into the truth of history and and what we can build with liberation, then yeah, we can end racism in our personal lives as much as we can. And I think with every breath that we take. So I know that was a long answer, Chelsea, and I wasn't even defining racial healing. <laughs> I'm holding to every word. So everything you're saying, I'm just, yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, I feel it. So keep going. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that first, um, you know, conversation is like, hey, you know, here's a system of racism. Let's define it. And do you think, you know, here are the people who set it up and we've got to be honest about it. It's not like black, indigenous, people of color, BIPOC people set it up. White people set it up. 
So what does that mean about whiteness? You know, how do we feel about that? Right. And of course we have white students and kind of encouraging some self-reflection there. Right. Then once we start telling the truth of, you know, what BIPOC people experienced under the system of white supremacy and start dropping some history, I think then we can say, Hey, (laughs) what do you think about this system? And I think Often with children, they express confusion. They express uh, distrust in adults. Like, how, how, are we, how can we end this? Like, why have people started this? And I think we have to answer them honestly and say, you know what? There are people who benefit from the system of white supremacy. And so when we engage in racial healing, it's about moving beyond that system. And so depending on the age group, I would define it differently. But, you know, if I'm working with teachers, I think we have to have like all the big high dollar words in some ways where unlearning stereotyped racial messages we've internalized, whether we're white or BIPOC, you know, we're, we're looking at the wounds that racism creates within us, no matter what our race is. And for BIPOC folks, that means it's, we've internalized uh, racism and a sense of inferiority, even if we don't want to name that, or we don't sense that every day. It's just the way the white supremacy works is it creates a seed of doubt uh, inside of us. Whereas white folks have internalized uh, superiority, right? <laughs> like, I, you know, I rule the world. But I think racial healing, it isn't, um, it isn't easy. It's not uh, a one-time event. But when we lean into racial healing, we look at the cost of racism, just like we would look at the cost of like what we've done to planet Earth. <laughs> you know, we have, you know, sought to destroy her for so many reasons that have to do with money. But when we identify the cost of racism, then we can start saying, oh, racial healing that's when we work to stop participating in white supremacy, where we notice where our race drives differential access we have to resources. And we can change that. So I think with children, I would move away from some of those like big words like stereotypes and more settle into uh, what do they think about the system of racism? How have they experienced it? What does it feel like to talk about it? And if they were to uh, define racial healing, how would they define it? How would they know it? How would they smell it? How would it, what would it taste like? And just get really creative with some of um, those invitations to explore it. But I'd love to hear, Chelsea, how you do this in your classroom too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I think the conversation is necessary from just the basic level of how do you feel about this? How do you feel about the things that you see? And just talking about experiences that that they've had. And, And I can be very honest in saying that I do have a class where I have a lot of white students who are coming from parents and that have conversations with them and they have the experience, but they don't quite have the language. And aside from the language, they don't have the experiences Mm -hmm. and they don't have an understanding of the harm that has happened. And so a lot of my students um, from third through fifth grade are still kind of confused about why it is that we have to have these conversations. They see things, but they don't really understand um, on a deeper level, why it's so important. So I think just the basic introduction of what's going on, establishing how they feel about what they're seeing, establishing uh, you know things that they've heard from their parents and kind of clearing up those muddy waters is really important. And so I think that that's how we start with that. And then definitely leading with, we need to treat everyone 
the way that we know we should treat each other. And we have to understand that our differences determine the way we treat each other because we want to expect that we can celebrate our friends and our families for all of the different parts that they bring to our relationships. And so through that healing and through that understanding and dialogue is how we can really explain racial healing for young people because they'll see how that's not happening everywhere. And Mm -hmm. so once we break that down, then it's easier to have those discussions and to, to dig deeper once we've established that. I love that. I, Tina, I just want to like kick back and be in Chelsea's class. Oh, everybody <laughs> does. Everybody does. I mean, you, you people that you grown people like I wish I was in third grade. Oh, she is. She is absolutely amazing. And I've seen her do this for 19 years consistently, not just here and there. But Chelsea has been an amazing teacher that parents call her. She has students now who are 16, 17 years old and invite children to their birthday party. Like who, what 16 year old kid invites their teacher from third grade to their, their birthday party at 16? You're supposed to be turning up. Kids, I mean, she's just, they love her. I I mean, I think it's her eyes. I think they look into her eyes and they're just like hypnotized and they're done. Yeah. Well, I can, I think it's, yeah, a soul level. I, I, I've Mm -hmm. always uh, seen that uh, as Tina would talk about you, Chelsea, but I think, you know, there's so many things that you said that are crucial. I mean, that invitation, that permission, and, you know, I'm trained as a counselor and a psychologist. And one of the things we just know, and this is why I kind of headed in the racial healing direction is that, you know, we start learning about our race at such an early age. And it's devastating. Um, it's devastating for so many reasons because number one, white supremacy we know is a lie. Uh, number two, no matter, and I, I know for parents, this is devastating, you know, especially if you're a black, indigenous, a person of color, you're raising your children to be what? Prideful of our races, prideful of our culture. Like, of course, like, look how beautiful our cultures are. And then our, our children go into educational systems, they go into the world, they go into communities and what happens that no matter how much we deliver that message, caregivers, we can't be with children when they hear that first racist epithet or they have that, that feeling that we even know as adults, like we know when racist, we know when white supremacy is grinding on us. We don't need anyone to tell us that. Um, but I think because you know, racial identity development starts at such an early age. And, you know, for all children, no matter what our race is, it starts in conformity. It starts in obliviousness, even if our parents tell us to be prepared. It's not until we have that first moment of racism that we're confused, we're disoriented. And uh, I think Tina and Chelsea probably see this a lot. Children just, they don't have their frontal lobe developed yet. (laughs) That place where all the personality and critical thinking is, it's like a beautiful unfolding. So I use the word devastating because when you think about that beautiful child's unfolding and what's happening in the brain, without that critical thinking, without that frontal lobe fully developed, really it's a felt sense of racism. It's a felt sense of something is not right. And children literally don't have the words to describe, hey, that was racist. Hey, that was not right. Hey, this happened to me. I mean, I have um, a black nephew and, um, 
you know, two younger white nephews. And I saw this happen as, you know, they would, you know, we had ant camp every year. Um, and I would see this happening in terms of what happens when people don't have all the information they need about race and racism. They end up stumbling over each other and hurting each other. They don't even know what's happening. So I think racial healing for me is not a woo-woo concept, although I can get woo-woo with the best of them. Let's just let me tell you that. Um, it is, it is a, this is a profoundly deep biological and physiological and psychological process that, um, that racism is shaping, uh, when we're so young. And I think that also, I'm going to come back to us as an adult because we're soaking up those first instances of race and racism when we really can't describe it with words. And it, our memory banks are operating, so it becomes like seated in a pretty deep level in ourselves, in our psyche. When we're adults, I think that's why we still can walk the earth and we might not be experiencing racism in the moment, but there's some felt memory that's coming back up for us that is demanding to be processed. So I could go way off on that, but what I'm saying is what Chelsea is doing in the classroom is right on because children need to know the truth. They need adults who can help tell them with a critical, uh, with, cause we have our frontal lobes fully developed, um, what's happening and break it down for them and explain it to them. I think that honestly, and, and I heard you say, you know, as adults, we, we, we know how to handle it. But when I think about young people, probably from about 20 to maybe 14 or 15, they grew up in a time where we were really preaching and pushing this whole colorblind concept. And so even talking about race was something that you don't do because we are all the same. And I remember talking about uh, race in, in my classes with my students and the first thing the kids would say is, well, that's racist. And I said, because I said she is a beautiful black girl, that is racist. And so just for them to even understand the concept around the fact that we have different things that we offer and it's okay to acknowledge that we are different was something that was not okay to do for a while. And so we're unlearning, kids are unlearning that process now. And because they are awakened to what's happening because of social media, because of it mm-hmm. being just in your face all the time, the conversations actually have a more organic seed where kids can can feel more comfortable to have that conversation. And so I think that's important too, is that for people who are still operating in that sense of colorblindness, that's, that is incredibly dangerous for you and for anybody around you who's getting that same message. That's exactly right on, Chelsea, because uh, where do we learn that colorblind message? You know, obviously from white supremacy and and you'll just, con- it's the constant refrain, like, how can we talk to children about this? They're so young, but they're learning. And that's the big message I think we all have to just accept and tell the truth about. It's uh, racial identity development is already happening. What do we want, you know, Black children, Latinx children, Middle Eastern children, Asian Pacific Islander children? you know, indigenous first nations, children, white children, what do we want them to learn about their race? That colorblind thing is not what we want them to learn. Cause it's, it's not accurate. It's not true. It's not based in history. 
But I, I hear what you're saying about the colorblind thing and maybe how people were trained, you know, that race is a four letter word and we shouldn't talk about it. So for those teachers who've kind of been schooled in that colorblind mentality, I see that as a form of trauma. Obviously, it's an artifact of white supremacy and keeping it all in place. But I also see it as a form of trauma because I think, again, racial identity development is happening so early in our lives that even if you're teaching in the classroom as an adult, those memories are always being pulled from and processed, uh, whether you can speak them or not. And ironically, even as adults, it's hard to go back and really say, hey, this is what we learned about race. It actually brings up a lot of grief with people. And I think that is probably one of the first places that I encourage teachers and educators and really all humans to think about is we got to get deep about this. Like, All the freedom fighters, all the abolitionists, they have literally fought and given us so much. I mean, beyond words, uh, they gave all their lives. And, um, And so for us, you know, our generational marker is to express gratitude that for that by being in the streets, yes. But I think we need to like go way deep inside of us and root out everything that has been implanted there that was not helpful. White supremacy lives in all of us. Yes. It lives in all of us. And so that gives me to the next question. You know, when you talk about kids, the one thing I love about kids is that they have this very concrete sense of right and wrong. You know, kid, you will not do a kid wrong. They, they want to know. <laughs> and so thinking about these conversations around healing, yes. But how do we hold people accountable and heal? Like, how do we help kids see what they saw on January 6th and talk about healing, but also how do we hold people accountable? That's a great question. I mean, I think this is like the thing we've all been searching for as educators, but I think the answer is actually really simple is that we tell the truth. Um, One of the things, you know, if you think about, you know, and you know, I was raised in New Orleans. We called it good home training. You know, we teach, you know, some form of that in schools. And and yet we don't teach um, how to give and receive feedback around race and racism. It's really quite um, I don't want to use an ableist term, so let me pause here, but it's it's really disorienting uh to have that happen because we actually <laughs> If we're going to heal from white supremacy, we have to talk about racism at, with with children at early ages. And what that means is that it's talking to white and light-skinned children, um, which would have been me in some of those uh, classes at different in different seasons of the year about you know the the advantages that are assigned to our skin and and to really learn the practices of honoring that that if we want to challenge racism, that we're going to have to understand what that means in terms of our advantage and how we can leverage that to interrupt racism. So I think, you know, we, we resource kids with a lot of stuff. We resource them with resisting like, you know, any type of invasion of their bodies. Hopefully that is being uh, taught in body affirming ways. We teach children about boundaries. Um, We teach children about how to treat one another. But we don't tell the truth about how racism is going to be grinding on them, even as they're interacting with one another in the classroom. So I think, you know, in some ways, 
I think that should be part of being onboarded into any community, no matter what your age is. Like yeah. how, how do you develop those uh, accountability and feedback networks? I don't know that I have all the answers here, but I do have all the belief that no matter what setting we're in, um, we can do this. You know, Adrian Marie Brown just came out with a book, We Will Not Cancel mm-hmm. Us. That's and right. You know, it's a baby book, um, but there's so many good things that she writes about, um, namely that we are hurt people, uh, even outside of the system of white supremacy, and we hurt people as humans. So what are the actual, you know, accountability networks we need and, and practices so that when we do hurt people, we can step back into um, relationship, we can repair wounds and um, actually uh, create restoration from harm. Yeah, you know, it, it, listening to you speak reminds me of two dope activists and abolitionists and anti-prison uh, activists. You know, first is Miriam Kaba, and she says it best. She said, you know, you can't make people, you can't make people be accountable. Like, they have to want to be accountable. But you do have to give them the space to be accountable, right? And how do you hope, open up a community space? to hold people accountable and give them space to be accountable and give them opportunity to be accountable? Like, how do we create that space? And then and the second part of that, you know, Charlene Carruthers says, you know, and we think about movement work, it's not about perfection. Nobody's going to get it right. But do we have integrity? And are we trusting and are we listening to people? And so when mistakes happen, we're able to hold people accountable because we we already have established these norms of trust and love and integrity and our intentions. And so it's so much, you know, about trying to hold people accountable. But you have to say to yourself, have I given you the space so you can start to do the work of holding yourself accountable? It's, you know, it's particularly when we think about abolition and not trying to throw anybody away. And, you know, because black folks and indigenous folks and brown folks, we've been thrown away so much. And so now we're trying to get together and we're all not well, we're, we're all not healed, so, but we're all trying to get together and do this work. And so how do we not throw people away? How do we not, you know, people be disposable? We've been disposed of for so long. And so now we're trying to heal, but everybody's at a different spot. And so it's really intense work of trying to hold people accountable and heal at the same time when you're thinking about communities that have been seen as disposable. Uh, yes, hundred percent. I mean, so many things in what you said, integrity, and I even hear love and like, do we have agreements as we come into communities to, and when I say give and receive feedback, I'm not just talking about give and receive feedback. I'm talking about the deep work of, you know, do we have community agreements that racism is operating, white supremacy is operating, cisgenderism, all the things are operating. And, and we have practices where we seek to interrupt that. We name it when it's happening. We don't blame. We don't shame. We see those and notice when that finger pointing stuff comes up. And we know the difference between making someone else bad and holding our boundaries that we actually have those conversations with one another and we teach uh, one another that I think what you said, Tina, just about, um, you know, this, this idea that we're all wounded in different ways and we're trying to heal after being disposable, especially for BIPOC folks. That's really deep. You know, if you look at the um, epigenetics, which is really the study of um, trauma, and if you think about racial trauma, Resma Menachem, who's one of my mentors, he wrote a wonderful book called My Grandmother's Hands, but 
you know, he really talks about like the, you know, the white enslaver behavior, um, you know, in regards to the East Atlantic slave trade, the impact on black and dark skinned communities was really, you know, 14 generations of racial trauma, you know? And so, you know, when uh, BIPOC folks are healing in the now, like what trauma are we dealing with? Is it like something that's currently going on with the person I'm trying to give accountability to? Or did did it happen to our grandmother's great, great, great grandmother? Yeah. And that's deep. And so I think we need those practices too in education to help us learn how to hold one another that the, the, what we need accountability for, it may not even be in this generation that we experienced. It might've been something else. Mm. And I think that is something we still need to innovate and build. I think in transformative justice movements, you see folks, folks trying to do this, um, to just create space to be like, you know what, I'm having a freaking terrible day and I can't directly link it to white supremacy, but I feel <laughs> I feel like my body needs to rest and restore yeah. today. Yeah. We need that. We need a lot more of that. And so, so with that, and I, and I know that it's hard because there's so many different steps that we have to take. And as, as teachers, we often want something that you can just put in a nice little lunchbox and give it to me and then I can unpack it and it'll be perfect. And I don't have to do much work outside of that. But if you could think of some steps to a person taking in order to initiate that racial healing, then how would you suggest someone go about starting? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Uh, I think in terms of starting healing, I think it specifically with racial healing, I think what the first step has got to be that we acknowledge that we have a race and everything that comes along with that. I think a lot of people skip over that step. You've got really like, you know, enthusiastic white anti racist. It's like they're holding everyone else accountable but themselves. <laughs> like, right. you know, if you're a white anti-racist, you're going to have a lot of resistance within you. And, you know, if you're BIPOC, we're going to have a lot of internalized racism within us. So I think the very first step is slowing down. And some of that entails a lot of grief. You know, when we start to name that we have a race and we have a role in the system of white supremacy, there's grief. We see it. You know, we see it in white guilt. We see it in the bargaining. We see it in the denial. But, you know, sometimes we don't allow ourselves to really spend time in that space, feel the pain if we're BIPOC, you know, and then move actually and start releasing that um, so it doesn't live in our bodies. And for white folks, it's kind of that felt sense of superiority that, yes, you're doing great anti-racist work, but at what cost <laughs> to other people? I think the other step we can take to start racial healing is, you know, really centering our unlearning of anti-Black racism and in you know, indigenous erasure. I mean, that is very painful when you start to really think about the world that we are living in now and what we all in many ways benefit from with both of those systems under white supremacy. And that's not just teaching our, reteaching ourselves the history. And I'm moving back to New Orleans and I'm like, I took that Louisiana history class, but they never taught me about the Chittimacha indigenous nation that's here. I'm having to reteach myself but I think, as Resma Menachem says, we reteach ourselves, whether it's history or to slow down and actually have space to feel the impact of racism so we can make real sustained change. 
he says, we got to do that. You know, if you're white, you have to do that for three to 10 years to build some white culture that's actually anti-racist. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I think for BIPOC folks, and we see that in the this in the Black Joy and the um, Black Girl Magic movement, um, you know, other um, BIPOC groups that are really, you know, kind of expressing a lot of pride, a lot of um, joy in our identities. For us, sometimes we get to that joy because, you know, we're still masking some of our pain. And so we're teaching wounded. We're entering the classroom wounded. And I think we can tell the truth about that, that as educators, especially if we're uh, BIPOC, we're still seeking uh, to heal by setting our boundaries, by talking about the truth of our experiences, by refusing to hold it and hold secrets anymore. So I know, you know, I wrote about 10 racial healing practices, but I think those are, those are a few I would start with. Um, And yeah, I think when you start this journey, as you both well know, it's one of liberation. It's one where we're not just out on the streets with our fist in the air, like reading the right books and posting the right things on social media, but we're becoming more human and we're reclaiming parts of ourselves that we may have left behind. I I love that. And I love the two things you said. Number one is, this is a three to five year project. This is unlearning. This is not a book club. It's not a Zoom conference. And then you're good. Like you have to practice this thing in your, in your very being. And then I love that you talked about, you know, indigenous erasure. You know, I was, I was laughing yesterday because JLo was singing like, this land is your land. This land is my land. I'm like, hold on. No, no, that's not true. (laughs) That's not true. You know, I I, I think my indigenous brothers and sisters will have a whole different spin on this land is your Mm -hmm. land. Right. This very erasure, that very song, that very erasure of it was just like, wow. You know, and, and you get caught up in the moment of the inauguration and it's J-Lo and it's like, it's J-Lo and she got on all her white. And, you know, really reiterating that it's J-Lo. It's J-Lo, J-Lo right? <laughs> and you just, and, I mean, she can't even sing, but she's like, it's J-Lo. It was J-Lo. It was J-Lo. You know, but the song she was singing was so much about like the erasure of our indigenous brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So it's always trying to catch yourself, even as a person of color, even as a black person, I'm always trying to check myself and catch myself in these moments, particularly when it's American exceptionalism, right? You're like, Oh my God. But yeah, so it's just so much to unpack. And I think what I love that you're saying is a journey. It's a journey. And, and no one comes out with all these things that we know all of this is a journey and we hope each generation, you know, adds and grows, but it's a journey and you stumble and you fall. And so the last question we want to ask you, I mean, you've, you've been so wonderful and thank you. It's just, we think about healing and we think about resistance and we think about love and we think about joy, you know, to you, why is healing so much a part of resistance and how we get free? Oof, I got chills when you ask that question. I mean, healing is resistance. I mean, it is our liberation. It's the only way, to, I think, to be human. It's the only way, I think, for BIPOC people, if, you know, we know we have shorter lifespans due to poverty, less ha- access to healthy food, education, all the things. But, but wow, um, you know, this stuff was, you know, it affects us at a cellular level. And so if we know those things, and if we know we're witnessing those things, then I I think especially for BIPOC folks, 
resistance, it's a sign of our boundaries. I know I've said the B word quite a bit in our conversation today, but um, I think so often we don't set those boundaries for ourselves Mm -hmm. as BIPOC folks to actually rest and restore. There is so much freaking white urgency going on around anti-racism. It's really kind of driving me up the wall. Everything is an emergency. They just found out the house was on fire. That's right. And I'm like, and somehow the white guys don't want to call in the white guys. I'm like, (laughs) there are many meetings I've been in where I'm like, this is a white guy issue. (laughs) The white guys need to call each other in. Um, But I think that, um, you know, the thing that's really on my mind right now about racial healing is we've got to create just relentlessly work and personal environments where black and indigenous people can rest, restore, and just, you know, (laughs) dictate their own lives. And I think for non-black people of color, our work, and this is our resistance is to, um, as we create those spaces, we really uh, do a huge life inventory about what we have learned and how we benefit from white supremacy and how we enact it and how we align with it. And then I think for white and light-skinned folks, it's time to get to work. Mm. The resistance has to be, you know, Robin D'Angelo talks about breaking with white solidarity. Great. But so many times I hear now that folks won't talk about racial justice or racial healing or white supremacy because it's always this one white guy. <laughs> the story else comes back to one white guy who doesn't want to have the conversation. We've got to move beyond that. And so I think in some ways that type of resistance is not part of racial healing, but I think racial healing is uh, when we take the time to really uh, do that life inventory, uh, that we go back and we kind of reconnect with that little kid that is in all of us and that just learned such lies, such lies about race and racism. And we like scoop that little kid up. If you're white, you scoop that kid up and you say, sweetie, oh, whew, that was a big lie. <laughs> and, and we've got some work to do. And sometimes you're going to feel guilty and ashamed and wish you would have known better. And I'm going to be the right there along with you with your, as your loving adult. And we're going to move through those emotions and we're going to reclaim our humanity. And for Black, Indigenous, other folks of color who are listening, I greatly urge you to go back and connect with that little kid that first learned our, our part where we were situated in white supremacy. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. We did not do anything wrong. We were trying to survive. And we deserve for the rest of our life to help that part of us heal, to love that part of ourselves, to celebrate that part of ourselves, and to continue to protect that part of ourselves for the rest of our lives for as, with every breath we have. I love that. I love that going back to that person, that little, that young person that you are. I love that. I had therapy yesterday, so you ride on time. You ride on time. You ride on time. Well, mine's tomorrow, so I can't wait. <laughs> I was told to write a letter today. That's what I was told to do. Write a letter to my younger self. So, yes. You ride on time. This is our therapy session. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Tina, you know, we, we got to write that thing on the anti-racist thing we've been talking about. I know. I know. I know. we got to do it. So, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. 
And as Tina is is thanking you for joining us, I want to go back to the boundaries word that you you use often and in asking and talking about those boundaries. My final question for every guest is always, what is your joy or what brings you joy? And and I think that boundaries are a huge part in being able to establish that. But I'd love to hear what brings you joy, Annalise? Yeah, I think right now what's really bringing me joy is uh, coming back to the city of my birth, New Orleans, where I learned the brutality of racism. You know, seeing my dad called a terrorist, seeing him beaten down, being called the N-word and realizing like, wow. I'm not that kid anymore. You know, I'm not that hurt kid anymore. Um, but that hurt kid is in me and she, she needs a little more love. Um, so I think right now it's bringing me a lot of joy to connect with my home, to uh, just feel so much gratitude for the Black and Indigenous culture that permeates my city. Uh, no matter what white supremacy is happening, it's just such a legacy and a lineage. And so the, the joy and the humility of relearning and coming back and being a community member. Um, it's lighting me up and it's challenging me and I cry a lot and I, I laugh a lot. So all of those things have been bringing me joy. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I love New Orleans. Oh my goodness. Y'all gotta come. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> One of our favorite cities. I spent a lot of time there. My sister used to live there. And so I spent a lot of time visiting her and, we were excited to take the kids to New Orleans and allow them to experience it from a different perspective. And so it is such a beautiful, rich city with such a deep sense of, of presence. And I can't wait to come visit you. I, I can't wait. We got rooms. Yes. <laughs> we need rooms. <laughs> we need rooms. So thank you so much for joining us. I mean, it is so great to hear your voice. I miss seeing you in the hallways. I miss seeing you at meetings. I miss seeing you on campus in Atlanta, but you know, I know you are in, I know you are right where you are supposed to be. Well, and I have to thank you, Tina Love, because when I was about to make this move, I didn't think I could. And I know just like so many people, you, you gave me that kick. You were like, are you crazy? (laughs) What are you doing? Take that job. Um, <laughs> so I just want to thank you, Tina, for all you do. And um, I just love seeing, you know, the way you're transforming our world. I think about all the children who are just going to grow up so much differently based on your work and, and the work of everyone who's listening and, and Chelsea for, you know, reminding us what that work looks like in everyday praxis. Thank you. I'm so grateful. And I can't wait to see what ATN does next. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you, Annalise. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, ATN family, we love y'all. We out. Teaching to Thrive was produced by Dr. Bettina Love, Chelsea Cully Love, and Dr. Kelly Morgan Gunn. The musical arrangement was provided by Dr. Gail Surden. We'd also like to thank our kids for being quiet.